Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is attorney George Conway, also a contributing columnist to the Washington Post. So thank you one and all, George. Great to have you. Let's start with the war. Wars have a way of clarifying things for people. On December 10th, 1941, the America First Committee, which had many prominent members, including John F. Kennedy and, of course, Charles Lindbergh, disbanded. Obviously, that was three days after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And we see echoes of this in the reaction of some Republicans to Putin. Uh, there had been a lot of sidling up to him on the part of uh, nationalists and Trumpkins in America, and that, that seems to be subsiding. But we'll we'll get to that in a minute. I want to begin, though, with just a scene setter for what's happening, because the war, according to most analysts, is not going according to Putin's plan. He grossly miscalculated and thought that it was going to be a few days affair where the uh, Ukrainians would simply surrender. Well, of course, they're putting up stiff resistance. And so the war is getting ugly. Not that any war is ever not ugly, but as is Putin's want, he is making war on civilians. So George, I'm going to start with you. You've been tweeting about this. There is no electricity or heat in Mariupol. It's about 14 degrees Fahrenheit there. People are boiling snow for drinking water. It's a terrible tragedy and and a travesty. I think it's gotten to the point where Putin realizes he can't win in the ordinary strategic sense of what he thought he could accomplish, which would be a quick capitulation and a quick regime change. And so he's going to do what malignant, narcissistic tyrants throughout history have done, which is create as much destruction as possible. And that seems to be what we're seeing. And the problem with that is he's in a box because in his own mind, he cannot give an inch. He cannot be humiliated. Um, That's what we know about malignant narcissists. And so what's his path out of this other than to cause total and complete destruction? And that's the scary thing about this. And and, and escalation. I mean, you know, if you, if you, you know, he's a, he's a man who, you know, by, by his nature is if he's going down, he's going to take as many people with him as possible. And this is a man with um, nuclear weapons. So I, yeah. I, I, I'm, it, it's a very, very chilling prospect of how this is going to play out. And I gather the talks that were conducted today didn't go anywhere. Right. So it is interesting, isn't it? Linda, I'm going to come to you on this. Look, NATO was reluctant to accept Ukraine as a member for many reasons, but partly because we weren't prepared to take the risk, as I understand it, we weren't prepared to take the risk in light of how likely we thought it was that that Putin might do something like this. 
And yet we find ourselves now in a situation where people are talking about risking nuclear war, which of course we're obliged to do by treaty for any NATO member. But now people are saying that we should risk nuclear war for Ukraine, even though Ukraine is not a member. Are we being wise about this? There's a lot of talk about a no-fly zone. Tell us what you think about that. I think you're in favor. I am in favor, at the very least, uh, in a no-fly zone for humanitarian purposes. Uh, If we could establish a safe corridor uh, to the west, not to the north and the east, which is what Russia has suggested, certainly willing to let uh, Ukrainians flee into either Belarus or into uh, Russia itself, but they don't want to see Ukrainians moving west and moving uh, into countries like Poland, Romania, and others. So the question is whether or not, uh, and it would have to be uh, through negotiations, uh, we could establish a humanitarian corridor. And the only way in which we could protect such a corridor is through establishing safety from the air, because we've seen what has happened and what Russia is willing to do. You know, you suggest that this means that we're risking nuclear war. Unless Vladimir Putin has gone totally mad, and I don't believe he has, I do not believe that Putin has any more interest in getting into a nuclear conflict or any kind of a conflict, frankly, with NATO and with the United States uh, than we have in getting in one with him. So the question is, you know, how much death and destruction, how many more pregnant women and young children and babies are going to have to die before we do something to protect the Ukrainian people from the kind of vicious assault that has been launched against them. We are doing things like providing weapons. You know, we're, we're now sending apparently a couple of Patriot batteries to Poland to protect Poland. You know, the, the place that needs those Patriot batteries uh, is Ukraine. And I presume the reason we cannot send them there is that uh, the Ukrainians could not operate them and it would require our uh, service people uh, to be able to do that. But, you know, we, we can't just continue to see people dying in the numbers that they are. I mean, there are more than 2 million people have fled Ukraine. And I just do not believe that we are going to, a month from now, uh, continue to see the level of destruction that we've seen and not be willing uh, to risk more than we're already risking. Vladimir Putin has already said that we have declared war on on Russia. uh, Economic war. Economic war. But, you know... So I am in favor of, at the very least, a humanitarian corridor that will allow us to get relief in food and medicine and people out. So Damon, I have a feeling you might disagree, but before you do, let me just point out the um, former Army General Mark Hurtling, who was in charge of the U.S. Army in Europe, had a tweet thread that was quite informative about a no-fly zone and, you know, pointed out the a number of factors, including, of course, that it does involve the willingness to shoot down enemy planes. But he also made a number of other points. For example, the problem isn't actually bombing. The Russians are not doing most of their damage by bombing. They are doing their damage by artillery. 
and a no-fly zone really wouldn't do much about that. But anyway, I have a sense that you probably think the risk here, Linda said that she doesn't think Putin is insane, but a lot is resting on that, I don't think. Right? There, there is. I mean, I, I don't immediately at the moment worry about, you know, this escalating to ICBMs flying between New York and Moscow or Washington and Moscow. That isn't what keeps me awake at night. I do worry about an escalatory spiral coming up from what is really, I mean, you can call it a no-fly zone, but I consider that a bit of a euphemism. It really is. It's a it's an open season on shooting at Russian jets zone. And I, I, I do think that, uh, you know, as Lyndon noted, something like 2 million Ukrainians have already fled without a no-fly zone. Uh, I hope that continues. And so we haven't needed the no-fly zone for those people to flee. Now, it's not great that they're fleeing, but a no-fly zone wouldn't stop a refugee flow. It would, in many ways, ease it somewhat, I guess. But as the the tweet thread you mentioned, I think, made clear, others have, have pointed this out, too, that we're not really dealing with a war situation where the primary factor is air power. In fact, Two weeks into the war, Ukraine still has its planes in the air, and so the Russians don't control the airspace. They're not bombing places on the ground. For the most part, it is mostly it is mortars and 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 you know missiles, air surface to surface cruise missiles, missiles cruise missiles, and mm-hmm. so forth. So it's not clear exactly what we would be doing up there, other than being a target for anti-aircraft missile batteries from Russia, which we would also have to target on the ground to protect our own planes. It's just, it's opening the door to all kinds of unpredictable risks that could lead us to be in a direct fight with Russia uh, in a war. And I just... You know, I'm totally open. I I don't think I would come down on the pro side, but, you know, people like friend of the podcast, Eli Lake, who is very, uh, very much an interventionist on these things and in this particular situation, uh, you know, he's tweeted some things along the lines of, well, if we're so sure that Russia isn't going to attack a NATO power because he's afraid of the consequences, then why didn't we just admit Ukraine into NATO 10 years ago? when Russia's military was less formidable than it is now, then wouldn't Ukraine not be in this situation? That certainly isn't something that I favored prior to the war starting, but I think that's a perfectly legitimate kind of retrospective thing that we might think about, especially in light of these recent events. However, uh, that's different than saying that now that the war is already underway, that we want to put ourselves in a situation of potentially downing Russian planes and having them and, again, those anti-aircraft batteries on the ground shooting at our planes. That is the United States and Russia and United States slash NATO forces at war with Russia. And I hope we also maybe get a chance to talk about the whole issue of the MiGs that Poland wanted to send that uh, the Pentagon has quashed. Like, that's another case where I'd be like, that doesn't strike me as potentially escalatory as uh, policing a no-fly zone. You know, I understand why 
some in the Pentagon think, you know, this is too provocative. We're going to be transferring weapons that aren't as strictly speaking defensive. I mean, once you give a country a fighter plane with missiles, there's no guarantee that it's not going to stray over into Russia and start bombing things over there. And then then we've, we've handed Ukraine offensive weapons, not just defensive, which could make Russia pretty pissed off at us. So again, we can debate that as well. But on the kind of hierarchy of, of escalatory moves, I consider a no-fly zone pretty far down that line and not as much as, say, the MiGs issue. I would be more in favor of trying to figure out a way to get those to Ukraine. So anyway, that's where I come down on it. Bill Galston, I want to ask you about your piece, but uh, but before I do that, I want to follow up with uh, Damon's point just a little further because, you know, there has been a lot of reflection over the last week or two about Did the U.S.'s signals to Georgia and Ukraine back in 2008 that someday they might join NATO, is that what caused Putin to to lash out? And other people are saying, well, hold on a minute. I mean, if that was it, he would have done it then. Or not only that, but certainly he hasn't touched any nation that is part of NATO, as Damon was saying, and therefore maybe it would have been wise to put them in NATO and then we wouldn't be where we are today, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the thing I want to follow up with with you, which is, all those things allow the decision makers time to calculate risk, right? They, they, if, if we had admitted Ukraine to NATO, Putin would have known that before he launched his attack, and that would have been part of his calculation. But once war begins, people begin to find themselves trapped or, 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 or they may feel trapped, and they may respond actually emotionally. And doesn't that change the calculus a little bit when you're in the middle of an actual shooting war? And, you know, that's why miscalculations can be so so problematic, so so dangerous in wartime, right? I mean, it, you're not dealing with sort of people at their most rational. People begin to get their adrenaline up and and uh, and and unwise decisions are more likely and unwise risks. What do you think? Well, I'm hard put to disagree with you, Mona. In part because I've seen, I've seen this tension within myself, mm. where my heart is pulling me in one direction, and my head is pulling me in a different direction. Right. You know, I've been reminded more than once of the young woman half a century ago who was being attacked in New York City, and her screams could be heard throughout the apartment complex and nobody came to her aid, which is really shocking from a human standpoint. And then I've, then I've asked myself, well, suppose I rushed out unarmed to try to defend her from the mugger wielding the knife who ultimately killed her. Would I be willing to risk my life to save hers when it wouldn't be a fair fight? And let's apply that to the no-fly zone. A prominent Republican strategist whose name I cannot use without authorization, I haven't been authorized, said to me flatly, establishing a no-fly zone is an act of war. And that strategist continued, the President of the United States has done nothing to prepare the American people for war. It is also the case that if you look at public opinion, there's a very sharp line that 
rank and file citizens establish between the kind of assistance that we are providing Ukraine, and they're willing to up it quantitatively, but they're not willing to step across the line that separates assistance to a beleaguered country on the one hand and involvement in an armed conflict with a nuclear power, nuclear armed power on the other. I have also been told that what someone said not too long ago is absolutely correct, and that is the destruction of Ukraine's cities is primarily occurring as the result not of not of air attacks, but of classic artillery bombardment. So the remedy for that is the kind of equipment that would enable the Ukrainian forces to target and destroy Russian artillery batteries. And that, I think, could be supplied. So my initial instinct on a no-fly zone, particularly after I read the letter signed by 27 prominent military and diplomatic experts, was to say, well, they must know what they're talking about. And so I took that letter around electronically to people whose opinions I trust, and I got a lot of sobering information coming back at me. And so if I, an observer, am reacting emotionally, suppose I didn't have time to double check the line of argument that credible experts are making and had to react simply based on what was in that letter. If I'd been a decision maker, I probably would have gone in the direction that they were recommending, but it's not at all clear that that would have been the right call. Do you want to say a word, Bill, about the... uh... What did you call them? The, the Not the Putin stooges, but the, uh, what did you call them? Well, first of all, let's be clear, as I'm sure everybody on this broadcast knows, the people who write the columns do not choose the headlines. <laughs> I did not call them what the headline writer called them, and I'm getting a fair amount of grief okay. as a result of that headline. You know, for those who happen not to read the Wall Street Journal on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis or ever, uh, I will say that I simply looked at what Putin's principal supporters and cheerleaders abroad and at home were saying before the invasion of Ukraine started and what they're saying now. And uh, most of these people are running for the tall grass, if not for the hills. Right. Okay. I'm going to stop you there because I want to hear George Conway on this. George, just to give you one or two little examples, and these are not just people with eggs on Twitter. These are actually leading Republicans, like the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who said in February, right before the war, he said, uh, Putin is very shrewd, very capable. (laughs) He said, I have enormous respect for him. I've been criticized for saying that. This was Pompeo. And then, of course, there were the comments of the former guy, which we talked about last week. We don't need to go into. But also people like Congressman Jim Jordan, and many, many Republicans on the committee that was uh, examining the first impeachment of Trump, which was, of course, about strong-arming Ukraine, 
at that point, the whole Republican narrative was that Ukraine was a terrible place. I mean, this was, um, for example, Representative Jim Jordan. We're talking Ukraine, one of the most, one of the three most corrupt countries on the planet, uh, and so forth. So, um, so I said at the beginning that uh, wars are clarifying. So, how do you uh, view the the uh, the climb down among Republicans? I mean, there there's actually quite a lot of evidence that Republicans at this moment, or at least uh, rank and file Republicans, are not very much out of step with the rest of the country on how uh, how res- how much responsibility Putin bears and what our position should be. Well, I'm a bit of two minds because I, I, I welcome that bipartisanship and I welcome the Republicans' return to thinking about the national interest as the American national interest and not someone else's national interest. And at the same time, I, I, I don't, we can't let people forget what happened over the last uh, four or five years with the Republicans. I mean, you know, you see, it, it's kind of sickening to see Elise Stefanik talking about the need to supply weapons to Ukraine and to fully support Ukraine when she made, you know, when she made her bones by defending the former guy for trying to extort Ukraine and for cutting off aid to Ukraine. It's just, it's head spinning. And I think we should be welcoming the sentiment that they are expressing now, um, but we can't let people forget how we got here. And one of the ways we got here, I mean, there's a there there's plain blame to go around to both parties and and multiple administrations. I mean, there was the whole a bad idea of writing a check that essentially the Americans and the NATO could not cash by saying that oh we would we are open to Ukraine becoming a member of NATO when in fact. You know, that wasn't really the case, which, you know, in part, you know, I don't not to not to go Mearsheimer on everybody, but, but that <laughs> is part of the story here. It did trigger the Russians to some extent. It did trigger Putin to some extent. I don't know. We might be here anyway, but it was a bad idea to do like what Obama did in Syria to draw a line in the sand that you're not willing to actually defend. And but that. Oh, and said, if I could interrupt for one second, keep that thought. But uh, there was one more thing. Don't forget that Obama was the one who said, "Tell Vladimir I'll have more flexibility after the election." And he also <laughs> said to his aides, apparently, "Explain to me what our interest in Ukraine is." Exactly. He didn't think, you know. So he's got some blame. The Bush administration, Bush forty three, has a little to blame. But you know, it's nothing like. You know, by the time 2016 had rolled around, I think there was a bipartisan consensus in mainstream foreign policy that we did have an interest in Ukraine and we did have to, we, we needed to support them as to the extent we could um, in, 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 in maintaining some kind of a stability in the, in the Donbass area and, and supporting them militarily or supporting them with security assistance. And you know, I mean, as as John Bolton said the other other day, you know, tr- Trump had no conception of that, and Trump had no conception of that because he had no conception of the national interest. The only thing that he cared about was himself, and all he cared about was finding the DNC server with CrowdStrike server and 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 Hunter Biden, and he certainly didn't give a shit about Ukraine. I'm sorry, I told you told me this was a family show, and I just used a bad <laughs> word, but it's true. It's an accurate word for this. Yes. Footnote to your last point, um, because one of the talking points uh, among 
the uh, on the right these days, and you see it a lot, is that um, if Trump had been president, uh, Putin never would have invaded. That that Putin only invaded when Democrats were president. That Putin was somehow afraid of Trump, and it was none other than John Bolton um, no. who said very clearly, Putin saw Trump. This is a direct quote. Putin saw Trump doing a lot of his work for him. Unquote namely undermining NATO, dividing the West, dividing this country, and uh, why would he want to interfere with that? And he had every expectation that Trump was going to withdraw from NATO in a second term, which Trump said multiple times. He didn't. So Putin absolutely was, you know, he was being savvy there, to use a word, in waiting for, hoping for a second Trump term, because that would have made his task so much easier. Yeah. And he didn't get that. And so that's why we are where we are today. He realized he's not going to get it for free, so he's going to have to take it at some cost. He just grossly, unsavvily underestimated the cost. In so many ways, both the uh, bravery of the Ukrainians and their skill Absolutely. and the uh, lack of skill of his own army and the world's response, he, he miscalculated many things. Okay, Linda, you wanted to make another point. Yeah, I just wanted to say, getting back to the your original point about uh, the Republicans and those on the right sort of walking back their praise of Putin, let's not let them off the hook too quickly. Uh, in the last couple of days on both the Tucker Carlson show and on the Sean Hannity show on Fox News, news. Uh, They floated uh, this uh, Russian disinformation uh, about Ukrainian biological weapons labs. Absolutely. Uh, And uh, it's utterly disgraceful. Uh, The United States has been working to try to safely remove bioweapons from Ukraine that are left over from the Soviet era. And I think what President Biden has warned is that the Russians may launch a biological attack in Ukraine and try to blame uh, the Ukrainians and the Sean Hannity's and Tucker Carlson's of the world. And Laura Ingram's. And Laura Ingram are walking right into that trap. It is Russian disinformation. I would even call it Soviet disinformation because I think <laughs> Vladimir Putin uh, is a communist. <laughs> Well, I don't actually think he's a communist, but I do think he's a Soviet, if you will, right? I mean, he's <laughs> okay, a, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And this is such bad faith. Can we just say, I mean, the fact is that even officials in the Trump administration have noted that the U.S. government had been working with the Ukrainian government to refashion those old leftover biological weapons laboratories and use them for peaceful purposes and so forth. So, you know, these people know this and they are um, they are purposely spreading disinformation uh, that that comes straight from uh, straight from the FSB. And by the way, um, that's a subject for another podcast where we will get into the information war that is also raging right now. And uh, it's fascinating to see Russians who uh, are receiving phone calls from relatives in Ukraine saying you're bombing us, and they're saying, "What are you talking about? That's just not happening." You know, so um, so the, the 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 war for truth is is simultaneously being waged along with the uh, along with the hot war. All right, let us take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors, and we'll be back with our next topic. 
Homeowners who have not taken advantage of today's low interest rates are overpaying their mortgages. Make sure this isn't you. It just takes a 10-minute call to my friends at American Financing, America's home for home loans, where you will get a free, no-obligation mortgage review from a salaried-based mortgage consultant. So there's no pressure. And you're not paying any upfront or hidden fees. You're just learning about the different ways you can save up to $1,000 a month. That's right, a month. Think of what you can do with that kind of money, the kind of difference it can make to your budget. Then make the call to American Financing to learn more and do it now before rates rise. You could end up skipping up to two payments and could close in as fast as 10 days. Call 888-991-9788. That's 888-991-9788. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net slash thrill. NMLS 182334, NMLSConsumeraccess.org. All right. We also have quite a lot of news, and this is why we're so glad to have George Conway here, who follows these things very closely, about the legal situation for a number of figures, the, the former president for sure, and also the January 6th defendants and others. So, George, you've been keeping track. So the committee has been attempting to lay hands on documents and emails from John Eastman, who is the lawyer who was advising President Trump that he had the legal authority to steal the election. And he had claimed attorney-client privilege, and I'll let you get into that if you want. But uh, basically, there's a judge now who's saying he's going to go over the emails and presumably release them to the committee. But then the question is going to arise that what will Merrick Garland do? He has told NPR that this is the most urgent investigation in the history of the Justice Department. And there are people like Larry Tribe and others who are saying that he should appoint a special counsel. Give us your sense of the lay of the land. How are things going legally for Trump right now? They're not going well. And I, I would note that I wrote a piece about a year, 14 months ago in the Washington Post, where I argued that three or four special counsels should be appointed to investigate Donald Trump. And what's happened is all these facts are coming out. And we haven't seen all of them yet because the January 6th committee hasn't released them all and they don't have them all yet. They're still digging and they're still taking testimony and conducting interviews and, and, and seeking documents. But what's happening is that people are starting to realize, and a lot of commentators and lawyers out there are starting to realize, and I hope the Justice Department is starting to realize, that the facts here actually fit a couple of statutes that could be used to prosecute Donald Trump. One is um, the stat- a statute that um, prohibits obstruction of official proceedings, which the January, which the, many of the judges in the District of Columbia who are handling these January 6 cases has said explicitly that that, that applies to the uh, counting of the electoral votes on January 6, 2021, and that was an official proceeding. And it's it's a it's a crime basically to conspire to impede such an official proceeding, and that's essentially what they all did. There's also another provision which is 
also a general conspiracy statute, but also has a specific aspect. It's, it's a Section 371 of the Criminal Code, which prohibits conspiracies to defraud the United States. And it's very broad. It's written in, it says that in any manner, in any way, and that a fraud against the United States doesn't, doesn't necessarily involve, you know, stealing money. And it can involve, as, as an opinion written by Chief Justice Taft says, it can basically involve efforts to impede the enforcement of any U.S. law. And that would obviously include the 12th Amendment to the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which were both in process on January 6th, 2021. And the facts show here, and the only other requirement for that statute is is that it be done fraudulently with an intent to deceive. And here's where we get all of the evidence coming into play. We're learning about all the different ways, some of which were apparent from the very beginning, but some are coming out more of that where people basically told Trump, hey, you lost and there was no fraud. We have Bill Barr telling him that. We have multiple people in the Justice Department who told him that, including the um, Barr's uh, acting successor, Rosen, and the acting deputy attorney general who replaced Rosen, Donahue. And we have the White House counsel apparently involved in meetings to that effect. You have the Secretary of Homeland Security, the acting secretary who said that to you. You have the cybersecurity agency of the Department of Homeland Security. You have internal memos at the Trump campaign. You even have Jason Miller having testified before the committee saying that he told Trump the jig was up and other aides told him. Remind our listeners of who Jason Miller is. He was an aide during the 2016 campaign. Uh, He was never in the government He's known for, among other things, impregnating a fellow campaign staffer in 2016. And now he is the uh, CEO of uh, Getter, which is one of the attempted social media alternatives to Twitter. And he's an all around bad guy. And he doesn't pay his child support. Um, but he. Uh, very close he, uh, to Trump. Yes, they're, they're, they're very close to Trump somehow or another. And, you know. Mitch McConnell called him and said, you lost, pal. He did that, you know, sometime in December. Everybody told him he lost. He had to turn on the TV. He lost. He lost 60 plus lawsuits in courts before state judges, federal judges, Republican judges, Democratic judges. And his best defense, I guess, is that he's completely insane and stupid. Wait, wait, let's let's hold that point for a second, George, because you see this. You see this among the Trump defenders. They'll say if he had a good faith belief that the election was stolen, then that, you know, he will not have the proper mens rea for a criminal conviction. What do you say about that as a matter of law? As a matter of law, he learned in so many different ways that he had lost. And frankly, he he said to people, one of whom I know very well, but I won't specify who she is, that <laughs> how could I have lost to this guy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she basically said, you know, basically you ran a crappy campaign. <laughs> and she wasn't alone in telling people that. Again, I'm not, not going to say who that was. So he he knew he lost. Okay. He admitted from time to time that he lost. How could I lose to that guy? And the only way he can get out from under that is to basically try to prove that he he is completely delusional and stupid. And he's never going to bring himself to do that. He'll just lie and continue to tell the lie. 
And that just would not be enough. And I don't think it would be enough, especially before a jury in the District of Columbia. And the first jury to hear a January 6th case convicted a January 6th defendant in four hours. So there's a big problem here that he has. This is if somebody takes this seriously at the Justice Department, and if you take Merrick Garland at his word, because he said in a speech back in January that he that they were not going to draw any artificial lines about who they could prosecute. They were going to go work their way up in the way that you do in mob investigations and other large investigations. You have to look at Donald Trump because every all the roads lead to him, not just in terms of trying to coerce Vice President Pence into violating his oath of office and violating the law on January 6th, but in terms of causing the campaign to cause people throughout the country to sign these fake electoral certificates, which were illegal. And then there was also the incitement of of violence on January 6th. If you add, you know, if you add the context of everything that happened and you look at his words in context, it was entirely foreseeable that violence would erupt. In fact, I and many other people noted before January 6th that the, that, the, that there was a big danger that something would happen on January 6th. There had already been violence in Washington. Absolutely. And so, you know, all of these things could be pleaded in an indictment and charged and tried as a multifaceted conspiracy to defraud the United States or to obstruct an official proceeding. And that's just two of the potential charges. I mean, when you think about it, it's a conspiracy to defraud the United States for somebody, you could be a low-level staffer, you could be the president of the United States, to steal money from the government. If you steal a billion dollars, you're going to go to jail president or otherwise. You steal even a few million dollars. Again, money that the government would never miss. You're going to go to jail. What Donald Trump tried to do here was to steal our democracy. And and if that's not prosecutable under these statutes, well, why do we have them at all? And in this era where we're watching people defend their freedoms from defend the democracy with their lives, with Kalashnikovs, and so the least we could do is to use the, the fact that we do have a legal system and we aren't being invaded to defend our democracy. It's the least we could do. Okay, well said. Uh, Damon, I used to be a little worried, uh, maybe a few years ago, certainly before January 6th. But even back then, people used to talk about the possibility of prosecuting Trump once he left office, and I was a little queasy about it. I wasn't sure that it was the right thing because it was so politically fraught, and would it be worth the cost and the circus and whatever? I don't feel that way now. What, what about you? I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, I, I, I am not a lawyer, unlike George Conway, uh, and I'm probably the least least lawyerly in the way I think about these things. So I will say that uh, I'll defer to the lawyers and to Merrick Garland and other prosecutors looking at Trump into whether they think that there really is a case to bring him uh, to justice in that way. And if they think so, then, uh, you know, Godspeed. Uh, I wish them the best. I hope it works out. I'm quite skeptical either that it will be successful or 
that that really solves our Donald Trump problem for us. On the first point, I mean, again, not a lawyer. I'm just going to respond to what I heard George said, you know, the line about Trump saying to an unnamed White House uh, staffer, uh, how could I lose to that guy? Okay, what does even that simple statement mean? That is not him saying, I lost to Joe Biden. I, I'm going to lie and say that I actually won so that I can steal American democracy. Uh, no, if he says, how could I lose? That could mean he's exasperatingly admitting that he lost, but it could also mean, come on, how could I lose? I didn't lose. It's an ambiguous statement, and it's not going to be, I think, enough to get you over the line. And I suspect that when you drill down into a lot of these things, I mean, there's a reason why, again, not a lawyer, but there is a reason why the DA in Manhattan has backed away from the investigation there into the financial misdeeds of, of Trump's business. I mean, this guy is essentially a mobster who is an expert at uh, getting people to do things without actually saying it, let alone putting it in writing, leaving any kind of a paper trail that can be used to get him. And I suspect that we're, we're dealing with a kind of murky uh, reality here where, where this is going to drag on for a long time, and I suspect it will be pretty indecisive. But I will say again, if the lawyers disagree with me, go for it. I hope it works, fingers crossed. But I will, my second point is the one about whether this solves our Donald Trump problem. I do not think it does. I think, uh, I think Bill Galston on this podcast on other occasions has made the point that our Trump problem is a political problem that can only be solved politically. How does that play itself out in this situation? Well, if Donald Trump is indicted by the Attorney General and the Justice Department under a Democratic administration, what we then get is the biggest circus in American history in a courtroom where Donald Trump therefore moves over the entire edifice of the rule of law and American politics into the dock and treats all of that as evidence of, of how much the entire system is out to get him. Americans, and I don't mean all Americans because I'm not one of them, but there are a lot of Americans who love an outlaw. And Trump's entire appeal is based on something like an outlaw appeal. And I, I shudder at the thought of Trump trying to run for president again in 2024 while under federal indictment. And he's not running against just the Democrat uh, in the election, but he's running against the rule of law itself. It's me versus the entire system. Who are you going to believe? Me, your conquering outlaw hero, or those corrupt establishment crony garbage people who want to take away all good things from you, the virtuous Americans for whom I am your tribune. This is not a healthy development uh, in American politics. It, it would be a kind of repeat of the four-year nightmare of the Trump administration at, at a kind of higher level of 
critical threat. So uh, when it comes to the political side, I can't quite say that I would even be on the sidelines with a thumbs up and fingers crossed hoping for the best. I'd be more kind of cowering in the corner with a helmet on my head. So that's where, yeah. yeah. So Linda, Damon makes a lot of good points, but let me present it to you this way. You could make the case that Trump is already the outlaw. A trial would not make him more of one. He has already attempted to undermine the rule of law in this country in the most profound possible way by undermining our respect for elections and courts and trying to undercut democracy itself. So there might be 25, maybe even 30 percent of the country that would rally to him in such a situation. But there but there are a lot of people in the middle who would be repelled. So what do you say to that argument? Well, I hate to disappoint you, Mona, but um, when I think about this, first of all, you know, where a trial would take place would be enormously important. And even if Trump were adjudicated and found guilty, uh, he could appeal that conviction all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I have to say that as much as I would like nothing more than to see Donald Trump in an orange jumpsuit headed for a federal penitentiary somewhere, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think, you know, you you only need one person. This, This would be a criminal trial. You only need one person to say that he's not guilty or, you know, to deadlock a jury. And I think the possibility of his actually being convicted is going to be very difficult. It's totally galling. I can't stand that I'm saying this because I'd like to see all of the people who participated in this attempted theft of a U.S. election. I want to see John Eastman, who, as you know, uh, I hired, uh, worked for me as a young man when I was at the Civil Rights Commission. I want to see him have his, his law license taken away. I want to see all of these people punished. And most of all, I do want to see Donald Trump punished. But I think uh, as a political matter, uh, having this happen, I think the risk, you know, we're sitting around talking about risks in war. I think the political risks in this one are enormous. And the worst thing that could happen would be to put Donald Trump on trial, have that trial either, uh, you know, result in a mistrial or God forbid, uh, he'd get off, uh, and exactly the wrong lesson would have been learned. So I'm, you know, I, I, I hate saying it, but I think that pursuing him criminally on these charges, uh, as opposed to some of the financial stuff that he did before he was in office, which I think, frankly, would have been easier. I think the peril to our democracy is great. So to sum up Linda's point of view, Bill Galston, I would say, if you aim at the king, you'd best not miss. And the chances of any jury of 12 in the United States not containing at least one or two dyed-in-the-wool Trump fans is nil. So don't go there. What do you think? Well, with considerable reluctance, you know, I find myself in the Chavez linker camp as opposed to the (laughs) Sharon Conway camp. Damon did a very good job of channeling my views. And since we've already spent a lot of time on this, let me just sum it up very briefly. I have two overriding political objectives. 
number one, to do everything possible to ensure that Donald Trump is not reelected and never sees the inside of the Oval Office again. And number two, to be Lincolnian for a minute, to bind up the nation's wounds, to try to begin the process of reconciliation after an extraordinary period of division. I do not see how the prosecution of Donald Trump would promote either of those objectives. And for that reason, although I am sure that that he has violated laws and that a colorable case can be made that he has, I do not see what purpose that I care about would be served by attempting to prosecute him. All right. Thank you. Now, for all of our listeners who complain that we never disagree, I would like to point out that we do disagree. But when we do it, we don't get vituperative. We don't shout at each other. You just heard how civil disagreement can be possible. So this is how it should be. And I just want to note that for those who say that beg to differ is just beg to agree. I mean, we do agree a lot, but sometimes not. All right. Since our honored guest has to leave early, I'm calling an audible. We're going to skip our third segment and uh, come back to it another time and go straight now to our final segment. It is now time for the highlight or low light of the week. George Conway, I'll start with you. The low light of the week. I mean, obviously, the low light of the week would be the war in Ukraine and some of the horrible things that we've seen. The highlight of the week is that we can still laugh at the former guy. <laughs> and um, it happened yesterday when some podcasters, I think from Canada, interviewed him and they asked him, oh, Mr. President, what do you what do you think is going to happen in Ukraine? Tensions are very, very high. And he started talking about windmills. He said, windmills, I've this is a, it, basically the, everything I've ever said about windmills is correct. They don't work. They kill birds. They they destroy the landscape. And for the life of me, nobody can figure out exactly how he connected windmills with Ukraine. I think it might have something to do with dependence on foreign oil. But of course, windmills reduce your dependence on foreign oil. So I don't know what his beef with windmills is. But if you want to look at an example of why it is the Republicans are all projecting when they question Joe Biden's mental capacity, just look at this tape. It is unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay, Damon Linker. Well, uh, I have a highlight this week. Uh, often I just pick, you know, basically the smartest, most interesting thing I've read in a week. And this week, that little prize belongs to uh, the British historian Adam Tooze and an article that he wrote for the New Statesman titled John Mearsheimer and the Dark Origins of Realism. Now, that's a kind of typical 2022 kind of headline because it, it sounds ominous and makes it sound like we're going to have a revelation that John Mearsheimer, who's a leading academic realist, political scientist, is somehow involved in some nefarious plot. It, it isn't really about that. And it also is about a lot more than just him. It's, a, it's an interesting essay, both about some recent scholarship that has shown kind of the intellectual history behind the Realist School of International Relations that came to prominence in the post-war period in the United States. But it's about more than that. It, it's about how such academic realism can sort of discern 
uh, certain things about international politics that other schools might miss, but that uh, it's kind of notorious kind of tone deafness to the moral dimension of international politics also leads it to miss some very important things. And the current war in Ukraine is a, a pretty bold example of that. This is a very, very thoughtful treatment of that theme, which many people have been discussing over the last couple of weeks. And it's near and dear to my heart as a moment of thinking, because I do incline in the direction of realism, but I try to remain open to its blind spots. So I recommend the piece, once again, titled John Mearsheimer and the Dark Origins of Realism in the New Statesman. Okay, thank you. Linda? Well, uh, clearly our listeners know that I am a masochist, um, and I often look to publications and television programs, etc., that I disagree with. So to my low light today comes from The American Mind, and it is an article uh, written by the late Angelo Cotavillo, Why don't you tell people what The American Mind is? Okay, The American Mind is an online publication of the Claremont Institute. It's been around for a few years. In fact, I actually had an article, and it's a very inaugural issue. But no longer would I ever allow my name to appear in that publication because it's become not just Trumpist, but in this case, the Angelo Cudavillo piece that I'm referring to is titled, What is Russia to Us? Now, I know you're never supposed to speak ill of the dead, and Professor Cotavillo died this year. But this uh, piece in American Mind is absolutely reprehensible. Uh, It is uh, an apologia for Russia and Russia's ambitions. And uh, it was put up on American Mind after the war in Ukraine had had already started Mm. and how they could justify putting up, and I'm just going to read you a couple of sentences from the piece. Vladimir Putin famously said that the USSR's demise had been a tragedy, but no one suspects that he could want to recreate it if he could. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it goes on to talk about Ukraine and goes on to say that certainly the eastern flank of Ukraine is something that Putin wants and obviously had already taken by the time Cotavillo wrote the piece, but his ambitions were going to end there. Again, it's one thing uh, to have written something before the war took place. It is quite another to put it up and keep it up when children and pregnant women and old people are being bombed into oblivion. And it is my low light of the week. Excellent. By the way, can I just add that the Russians are actually claiming that those pregnant women at the hospital they bombed were crisis actors. I kid you not. Right. Along with the Sandy Hook parents, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Bill Galston. The low light of the week is obviously the bombing of maternity hospital. I need say no more. Talking about shocking and outraging the conscience, uh, if you have one. My highlight is in another direction altogether. There is a long and very instructive piece in today's Wall Street Journal about a book published a couple of years ago by a senior and much respected British financial official by the name of Charles Goodhart, that made the case at a time when inflation was near zero and had been for quite some time, 
that we're going to enter into an entirely new era of inflation starting in 2021. And the argument had nothing to do with the pandemic. It was that a combination of a looming labor shortage plus a top to bottom rethinking of extended supply lines subject to both technological and political risk would lead to a new era where the pricing pressures were on the upside rather than the downside. And that after a surge of inflation, which he predicted for 2021, that we would settle down to a new normal where baseline inflation was between three and 4%. I did not know about this book, but I'm going to rush out and get it or whatever the virtual equivalent of rushing out to get it is, <laughs> uh, because he has given academic validation to instincts that I've had about this for quite some time, uh, and which I find that members of the economics profession who have grown to maturity during 40 years of steadily declining inflation have failed to consider. All right. And let's keep our fingers crossed that it turns out to be true. Uh, the inflation rate uh, for February, we just learned, came in, I think, 7.9%. So right. Correct. That's, uh, yeah. All right. Um, my highlight is very short. It is a tweet from Scott Lincecum, friend of this podcast, Cato Institute scholar, also contributor to the Dispatch. He just said this. He said, eagerly awaiting the Russian jobs boom now that their economy is mostly disconnected from the rest of the world, which is a very nice sort of nutshell refutation of the entire protectionist notion that you can expand your economy and improve employment by limiting your trading with the outside world. So bravo for that. And with that, I want to thank our guest, George Conway. I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri Moe, and our beloved listeners. Thank you so much for your letters. Uh, some of them were a little tough um, about our last episode, and I hear you. I think they made excellent points, and I've uh, taken them on board. And we will return next week, as every week. 